Peter Steinke, in his book, Healthy Congregations, A Systems Approach, lists 10 recurring triggers of anxiety in local churches. Number one, financial crisis. Number two, sexual misconduct. Number three, worship wars. Number four, old versus new. Number five, internal versus external focus. Number six, leadership style. Number seven, staff conflict. Number eight, growth and survival issues. Number nine, a sudden death within the congregation. And number 10, some kind of trauma or transition. However, Steinke says that anxiety in a church can be good. Here is what he writes. For any system to be healthy, it has to be challenged. Sometimes that challenge comes in the form of conflict. A healthy congregation is one that actively and responsibly addresses or heals its disturbances. In fact, when asked how a church builds a strong immune system to help overcome these anxieties, Steinke replied, by having a strong sense of vision and mission. Well, our final text in our sermon series from the book of Colossians, I believe, is a vision, mission kind of text. So if you brought your New Testament this morning, turn to Colossians chapter 4. We will be studying, as we conclude this series uh, today, verses 2 through 6. 2 through 6. And I believe it is in this text we find a first century vision for a 21st century church. Uh, There are any number of really strong, powerful, evangelistic type texts or vision, mission-oriented texts in the New Testament. And this one would be one of my top three or four. Here is what Paul says. Devote yourselves to prayer, being watchful and thankful. And pray for us too that God may open a door for our message so that we may proclaim the mystery of Christ for which I am in chains. Pray that I may proclaim it clearly as I should. Be wise in the way you act toward outsiders. Make the most of every opportunity. Let your conversation be always full of grace, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer everyone. Our theme in this series has been Colossians 2 verse 8. In that text, Paul says, See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the elemental spiritual forces of this world rather than on Christ. As we have seen, Paul has warned the Colossians not to be enslaved by worldly philosophy. Paul says it is empty, phony, humanistic, and worldly. 
And whatever this philosophy was over 2,000 years ago, it appears to be some kind of syncretic blend of, of Judaism, Christianity, Hellenism, maybe perhaps some pagan mystery religions. It is as if these Christians in the ancient city of Colossae, Jesus simply wasn't enough. And so they were adding a little of this or a little of that. And so really the dominant theme throughout this letter has been Jesus is sufficient. Jesus is more than enough. And also, as we have said throughout this series, that warning remains relevant today. We too are bombarded from all sides of perhaps mixing our Christianity with a little pop psychology or self-help therapy, or this is the key to happiness, or this is the key to significance. And maybe even today we too are tempted to mix a little Christianity with whatever. And so this, this warning, this, this plea to, to remember that Jesus is sufficient is still relevant today. And when we fail to focus on Jesus, we will lose our way. And so Paul, as he begins to conclude this letter, has this, this powerful little text in which he, he tries to kind of bring everything together. And as he reflects upon his own ministry, uh, challenges those Christians in Colossae, and that challenge remains to us today. To be focused upon Jesus, to, to have a vision in which we are seeking to reach the world with the gospel of Jesus, and to be as evangelistic as we possibly can be. I think our text emphasizes a couple of things. First of all, I've lost, there it is. First of all, it emphasizes powerful prayer. And in the first couple of verses of our text, Paul mentions four ingredients of powerful prayer. Four ingredients that can energize and enliven our prayer life. Number one is uh, persistence. Uh, some translations say, devote yourselves. Others say, be uh, very diligent in your prayer life. Uh, the word or the verb that's translated as devote yourself is derived from a root which suggests power. And so as we think about our prayer life, it being full of power, full of energy, the idea means to remain faithful to or applying oneself exclusively to a certain thing. In this case, it being prayer. Dedicating oneself to it tirelessly constantly applying this attitude of prayer towards God, not letting up, stubborn resilience, and on and on we could go. But the idea of persisting in prayer. A second ingredient that we see, we might call vigilance. The NIV says, being watchful. What is interesting to me about this particular word, it's used maybe a dozen times or so in the New Testament. And there are other texts in which it is used in reference to prayer. 
But it's also used in a number of times in reference to the second coming of Jesus. And so there seems to be this this idea within Paul and the rest of the New Testament that that one, one thing we do is to pray as we anticipate are very, very vigilant towards an expectation of Jesus coming again. And so I think what Paul is teaching us is to pray with a perspective towards the future. Pray in the confident expectation of Christ's return. And we, we have seen uh, a couple of times throughout this series of Paul alluding to the future. The fact that Jesus could return at any moment. And in that sense, the return of Christ is near. A third ingredient of powerful prayer is thanksgiving. And again, another theme that we have seen uh, throughout this letter, chapter 1, verse 12, chapter 2, verse 7, uh, chapter 3, verses 15 and 17. And I think in one of the early lessons uh, when we talked about living a life of thanksgiving, uh, that New Testament scholar N.T. Wright suggests thanks living, that our lives are just characterized 24-7, we might say, of having this, this attitude of gratitude towards God and what He has done for us. And so a thankful prayer acknowledges that salvation belongs to the Lord and is the work of His grace. And so regardless of the circumstance, uh, we can be thankful for what God provides to us through Jesus. And then the uh, final ingredient, uh, we might say, is uh, petition. Uh, Paul spends a a couple of verses in this text asking these Christians in Colossae to pray for him. Now, remember, Paul is in prison. And it appears that whenever Paul was in prison, God still worked through him and continued to open doors evangelistically for the Apostle Paul, even though uh, he was in prison. And so Paul petitions prayer on behalf of himself and his missionary team. Of course, this idea of an open door is a metaphor for evangelistic uh, opportunity. And I think as as Paul requests this prayer, as he requests this uh, petition to God on his behalf, the primary focus is on the message of Jesus, the gospel of Jesus. And so this becomes an example for us to to also pray for open doors, doors of opportunity for ourselves, uh, our missionaries, others who have been entrusted with this great work, this great ministry of proclaiming the message of Christ, uh, for God to open doors of opportunity so that more might hear of the good news of Jesus. But not only is this vision mission text emphasizing prayer, it is also emphasizing what we, what we might call winsome witness. Uh, outsiders in verse 5 seems to refer to non-Christians, those outside of the Christian community. And there are two ingredients Paul lists in these two verses 
that are a part of winsome witnessing. Uh, witnessing that wins others over. We woo them by the message of Jesus. The first is behavior. Again, looking at uh, verse 5. Be wise in the way you act toward outsiders. Literally, walk in wisdom with those who are outside. Uh, the idea of, of walking is, is a favorite word, a favorite concept uh, of Paul. And walking, as we've discussed, certainly suggests movement, a sense of direction, uh, activity in our lives. And it has to do with, with conduct, the way we behave, being a very powerful witness, a consistent witness before others with the gospel of Jesus. Uh, this idea of making uh, the most of, of every uh, opportunity has that idea of redeeming the time, of, of buying the time, not wasting uh, every opportunity we have. Uh, I, I think we've discussed before, remember there are basically two words in the Greek language which can be translated as time. The first is, is chronos, from which we get chronology which uh, refers to time as it, as it moves along, as the clock uh, ticks, ticks along. I'm wearing my official University of Alabama Crimson Tide watch today. And I can watch the seconds move along. That is chronos time. But that's not the word that Paul uses here. That word is, is kairos. And it's, it's kind of a difficult word to translate. Uh, it suggests crisis time. It can suggest an, an event. And, and in this context, it, I think Paul is saying, again, I think the English translations do a pretty good job. It means to make the most of every opportunity. Don't waste any opportunity. Don't waste any time. You know, someone has said time is, is the only thing that can't be resurrected. Once it's gone, it's gone. That's true chronologically, and it's true speaking of, of kairos kind of time, significant time. And so Paul is, is really challenging us uh, in the way we conduct ourselves, in the way we live our lives, to behave in such a way that we don't miss any opportunity to let our light shine uh, before men. And then the second ingredient is conversation. He says three things about our conversation. It is to be in grace or graceful. It is to be seasoned with salt. And uh, this is kind of a, an, an idiom, we might say. There's a lot of discussion as to what this little phrase might mean in speaking about our conversation or the way we uh, visit or talk with others. It has the idea perhaps of being witty or maybe even a little humorous or, or clever. Uh, the idea is that we speak about Jesus in such a way that it, again, is very winsome. It wins other people over. And then he says, we also must know how to answer. Right? Here, here's the way I apply this text to my preaching. Uh, on Sunday mornings or before I get up to speak, 
uh, I, pray, I pray what I call the four C's. Number one, I want competence. <laughs> Hopefully I've studied and I've done my homework and I know a little bit about what I'm going to try to say. All right? That's knowing how to answer. And then the other three C's have to do with speaking in grace and seasoned with salt. I want to speak with conviction. I want to speak with courage. But I also want to speak with compassion. I'm always always concerned that often I come across as angry or upset. And and that's that's not the case. I think we do... Uh, need to feel a sense of urgency. And we're going to get to that here in, in just a moment. Uh, but again, the, the powerful, just the power that a godly life can be. Uh, this, this consistency. Not perfect, not perfect, but consistent in the way we behave, in the way we converse with other people. So let me suggest, I think, five things uh, this morning as we uh, think about uh, this particular text and as we conclude this study on uh, or from the book of Colossians. Number one, when you think about powerful prayer, our day should begin with prayer, continue in prayer, and end in prayer. Now, of those three time slots, we might say, I tend to do pretty good in the morning... And I always pray at night. But it's, it's during the day that I often fail. Why? You get busy. You get distracted. Uh, we, we can come up with any, any number of, of excuses. And so I am learning to, to try to the continue part throughout the day. I've kind of I've trained my mind. The, the minute my eyes open in the morning before my feet ever touch the floor. The first thought that comes to my mind is Psalm 118.24, and that's the Dean Kilmer influence on me, which says, this is the day the Lord has made. I'll rejoice and be glad in it. Then I, in my mind, recite the Lord's Prayer. And then, I, in my mind, I, I quote my verse of the year, Colossians 2 and verse 8. And then I just pray a general personal kind of prayer. At night, I try to reflect upon those things and then usually pray for my family. That's, that's, what I, that's the last thought I want to have before God when I go to sleep. But it's during the day, okay? It's during, during the day that I'm still learning and trying to discipline myself to continue in prayer and to have the four ingredients that Paul suggests in the first couple of verses of this text, which brings me... To number two, I'm going to throw out a suggestion here. We need someone, or perhaps several, to step up and be a champion for prayer. And and here here is my example. A guy by the name of David Knight. You know, we, we left Lamar Avenue. We spent five years with the North Sheridan Church in Tulsa, then three years in Mansfield, Texas, and then nearly ten years with the Westwood Church in Edmond. And I was, I was really impressed when I got to Westwood in Edmond that they had a deacon of prayer. And his name was David Knight. 
And, and as I got to know, know David, he, he was such a prayer warrior, as we say. And so we regularly had prayer events or prayer activities. And he would organize 40 days of prayer. Or we would have a 24-hour prayer vigil. He would get before us regularly in the assembly and challenge us with some kind of prayer activity or prayer exercise. He consistently had things in the bulletin reminding us to pray. And David and his wife Stacy moved. And we, he was never replaced. And as, as I reflect back upon it, not having that person, that champion for prayer, I, I think really had a negative impact upon us uh, as, as a congregation. And so I would challenge someone just to kind of step up. Or it, it may be several. You know, a church our size, we might need several. And so to be consistent in our prayer life, both individually and corporately as a congregation. The final three have to do with behavior. Number three, we must remain engaged with our community. I mean, we must not withdraw. We need not isolate ourselves. We must remain engaged. And again, we can do that on a couple of levels. Individually, as we are a part of civic organizations and civic clubs and involved at school and PTO or PTA or PT, whatever it's called today, and just being in the community. But I also think there are some ways that as a congregation, we need to be involved. And I, and I think it's okay just to kind of advertise ourselves in that way. And, and to be engaged. Remember, literally Paul says to walk in wisdom with outsiders. You know, with means engagement. That we are involved with others. Number four, there must be a consistency. We must walk the walk and talk the talk. Again, None of us are perfect. But we can be consistent. And, and maybe that's what we need to work on a little bit. Where, where our walk and our talk do match. And, and we can live consistent lives. And again, we can be that powerful witness before others and in our community and even beyond for Jesus. And then number five. We must cultivate a sense of urgency. Cultivate a sense of urgency. Redeeming the time. I, I recently finished a little book by a man named Alan Roxburgh. And I, I, find, I find this very interesting. Now, of course, the gospel is for everyone. And, and we, we seek to reach everyone. But there is a segment in our society... Uh, in, in our culture that appears to be somewhat vulnerable that I think we especially need to focus some attention upon. Listen to what he says. If you were born between 1925 and 1945, there is a 60% chance you are in church today. 
So at the risk of maybe upsetting some of you dear sisters and people maybe being able to guess a little bit about your age, I'm going to take that risk. So if you were born between 1925 and 1945, if you're able, would you please stand for just a moment? Okay, pretty, pretty good percentage. All right, you may be seated. If you were born between 1946 and 1964, there is a 40% chance that you are in church today. So if you were born, that's basically baby boomers. So if you're a boomer, please stand. All right, more of us. Lori is just being nice. She really was born just about 15 years ago. She's doing that for me because I would be standing as well. All right, good. Sit down. Thank you. Now the busters. If you were born between 1965 and 1983, there is a 20% chance you are in church today. So, again, between 65 and 83, please stand. A little fewer, not many. All right, please be seated. If you were born after 1984, there is less than a 10% chance you are in church today. So if you were born after 1984, please stand. Pretty good. Pretty good. But it's the smallest group. You may be seated. There is a door open for that generation. And, and we, we, we just began to talk this last week about September of this year when this church will celebrate 150 years. That's a long time. And, and how has this congregation been able to exist for 150 years? Because it was very serious about replacing each generation, right? And, and it, was, it was very serious about teaching children and, and reaching younger generations. And, and I don't know, no one knows if the Lord is going to return in another 150 years. But, but I think, we, don't we all agree, if he doesn't, 150 years from now, we want Lamar Avenue to celebrate its 300th anniversary? Anybody with me on this? Then we need to take seriously about reaching younger generations. And those of us who are older, it, it, might mean, it might mean that we are uncomfortable doing some things. We never change or compromise the message. Please don't misunderstand me. But we might have to change our methodology. And if you think about it, if we're honest, we've done that in the past. And, and so as, as we continue, continue to, to dream and to plan and to program, and, and we ourselves ask the Lord to open up doors of opportunity, this, this generation needs Jesus. 
just as every generation needs Jesus. And we, we live in a community that, that, that is full of younger people. And so we need especially to target them as, as we seek to reach as many as we can. And, and I hope we can, uh, can have this sense of urgency to ensure 30, 40, 50 years from now, this church will still exist and God will still be using this church, its light to shine brightly in this city, this county, this community, and beyond. Michael Gorman, in his book, Apostle of the Crucified Lord, in his discussion on Colossians, says this. Colossians appears to have been written for one purpose, to convince its recipients that Christ is sufficient for their spiritual liberation and life. They should therefore resist the temptation to engage the practices that purport to supplement, but actually supplant, as far as Paul is concerned, their participation in Christ's death and resurrection. Colossians appears to have been written for one purpose, to convince its recipients that Christ is sufficient. The question is, are you convinced? Am I convinced? Are we convinced that Jesus, as Chris read this morning, is the way the truth, and the life. If you need to respond to Jesus this morning, please come forward while we stand.